Well, thank you, Zach, and good morning. Uh, it's fun to be here, uh, fun to be in church worshiping. And we just barely touched this passage this morning. The entire chapter is much, much longer. And we needed to leave out some passages so that we could actually get some time to actually talk about what's going on. I want to begin with just a bit of a recap of this whole story. So in case, by chance, you don't know it, that you get a chance to be able to put the pieces together as we dive in. So Nebuchadnezzar, um, if you remember in chapter one, they had gone up, the Babylonians had gone up and taken, um, taken out Jerusalem and they took captive uh, different of uh, the, the Jewish young men. Daniel is one of those and he is in this story. But this is the second year of Nebuchadnezzar's reign. So if you remember, they're in that training for three years. They're basically halfway into their training when this event happens. When it happens, the the king basically wakes up in the middle of the night. He has these dreams and they trouble him that it's just a scary, scary dream. And with that scary dream, he doesn't actually remember the dream. So he goes to his wise men, his magicians and astrologers, the, the Chaldeans as they're called. And he asks them and he says, hey, tell me what my dream was. And they said, well, we'll interpret it for you if you tell us what you actually dreamed. And he says, yeah, about that. I don't remember that. So if you're all you say you are, then you tell me what I actually dreamed. And they're like, yeah, nobody can do that. Not even the gods because they don't dwell among men. And so they say, we can't do that. And Nebuchadnezzar says, well, then you're all going to die. I'm going to tear you limb from limb in your family and everything else. And it's going to go bad for you. And this is crazy making. At this point, you might stop and think, you know, I've had problems with how our government leads from time to time, but suddenly I think America's a good place. There's some pretty good choices from our leaders right now, comparatively to what Nebuchadnezzar is doing in this moment. So a guy by the name of Arioch is sent out to actually gather in all the wise men and kill them all. And that includes Daniel and the other three um, boys, which is Hananiah, Azariah, and Meshiel. And those three with Daniel are going to be put to death as well, even though they weren't a part of it because they were off in training. We can assume there were others there as well. Daniel then, when he hears this story, he stops and says to, to Arioch, whoa, 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 wait a minute. Um, can we not do that yet? Let's just at least, can I make an appointment with the, the king? And so they make an appointment for the next day so that he can offer the interpretation. He comes back to the, the three buddies and says, hey guys, we got to pray because we're going to die otherwise. And they seek the mercy of the Lord. And in the seeking of the mercy that night, those guys pray together. Daniel goes to sleep and he himself has a vision that comes to him, which is the whole dream that Nebuchadnezzar dreamed and the interpretation that goes with it. The next morning, Daniel goes, has a conversation with Nebuchadnezzar, tells him what he dreams, tells him what the interpretation is. And then Nebuchadnezzar, true to his word, stops and says, hey, guess what? Um, I told you I'd give you riches and glory. And he does just that. That's the whole chapter. So we're done. Let's close in prayer and we can be out of here. That's an awesome story. But there's some really cool things and principles that are in this story that we want to pull out. Uh, the title of this whole series as we go through Daniel is Citizens of Distinction. It's the idea that these four young men, how they live their life during an incredibly difficult time, stood out. 
And it stood out so much that here we are years later talking about it. And so as we look at this story of the citizens of distinction and how it plays out, I'm going to give you four points. And so I'm going to give them up front and then we're going to go through them. But I want to kind of lay them out right at the very beginning so you have them. Um, Write down what you can, but we'll get to it later. Number one, what you believe about God determines your actions. So we'll describe this in a second, but what you believe about God determines your actions. What Daniel believes about God and what the Chaldeans believe about God determines their actions, their response. Number two, what God believes about you is infinitely more important. Indeed, that he thinks about us at all is incredible. What God believes about you is infinitely more important. Indeed, that he thinks about you at all is incredible. And number three, God controls the times and the seasons. Everything that we're going through, God controls the times and the seasons. He sets up and he removes kings. And he knows things. He knows all things. God controls the times and seasons. He sets up and removes kings and he knows things. All things. And finally, number four, citizens of distinction have a different spirit for they have followed God fully. The standout mark of citizens of distinction is they have a different spirit in them and they follow God fully. Those are our four points. We're going to use those as we jump into to Daniel. So we told you the story at the very beginning of how Nebuchadnezzar has this dream and he calls together his wise men to say, tell me what this dream is. So we're going to jump in at verse 10 and see the response right off the bat from these wise men, these, these astrologers, these magicians, these Chaldeans. There's a lot of words that are used for these guys, but they're basically the counsel that the king has, the best of the best, those who are going to understand the mysteries of the world more than anyone else, these are them. And wise men is one of the titles. So rather than just putting them all off as charlatans, you have to understand these are the smartest individuals in the entire kingdom. And the king has brought them together. And as he brings them together in verse 10, it says the Chaldeans, and that's going to be a general description of all of these group of wise men. The Chaldeans answered the king and said, there is not a man on earth who can meet the king's demand for no great and powerful king has asked such a thing of any magician or enchanter or Chaldean. The thing that the king asked is difficult and no one can show it to the king except the gods whose dwelling is not with flesh. So they stop and, and partly right in the sense that no one can answer this except the God. They get it part right, but they stop and say, the gods whose dwelling is not with flesh. Those gods don't interact with us. The only one who might be able to do it is these gods and they don't interact with us. So you can't get an answer. We can't help you. What you believe about God affects your actions. How they responded came directly from this belief. They looked at it and said, I can't have a relationship with God. God's the only one that knows it. And he's not telling us, so I can't tell you. That response is exactly this principle. What you believe about God determines your actions. If you don't believe God knows, if you don't believe God talks to you, if you don't believe God is in relationship with you, you won't turn to God in the times of trouble in your own life. 
What you believe about God determines your actions. It determined the actions of the Chaldeans. And as we're going to see, it determines the actions of Daniel himself. They stop. Nebuchadnezzar says, tell me. They say, can't. No one except the gods, little g, whose dwelling is not with the flesh, could do this. What you believe about God determines your actions. So what you believe about snakes determines your actions. What you believe about all kinds of things determines your actions. The reason why I use snakes is that just a couple of weeks ago, I was with some of my grandkids. We were in Colorado. We're along the Blue River, just uh, north of Breckenridge. And we're going out for a hike. And one of the grandkids have said to me, Papa, we want to catch a snake. I want to hold a snake. And I'm looking at him like, well, good for you. But I... I Snakes are not easy to come by. I don't know about you, but I've hiked a lot. And as I hike, I see snakes from time to time, but I might hike four, five, six, seven, eight days and never see a snake. And here's my grandkids and they're going, Papa, we want to see a snake and we want to catch it and we want to hold it. And I'm like, it's good enough if we can even find one, but then to catch it is going to be a challenge. But all right, you know, I'm looking at it. And so I start to pray and I literally say, all right, Lord, you know how bad they want to hold a snake and, and you know how bad I want to be their favorite papa. So at that point, there seems to be coming together for a moment that, that you would reveal to us a snake. So we're going along these rocks and it's maybe five minutes later and there's a snake. And here's this snake. And as he goes into the rocks, his head ducks into the rocks and he doesn't climb all the way in. So his tail is sticking out. Now, here's what I believe about snakes. There are poisonous snakes and there are non-poisonous snakes. The poisonous snakes, rattlers in Colorado, in the Western United States, they can bite you and they can inflict some pretty severe damage and in some rare cases even be fatal. I know that about snakes. I believe that about snakes. And I look at the snake's tail and there are no rattles, but it's a smaller snake. And what I also know about snakes and believe about snakes is that baby rattlesnakes don't have rattles. So I look at this snake and I realize if I grab the tail of this snake and yank him out and it turns out to be a rattler and I hand him to my kids, my grandkids, this could turn out badly. And I won't be a favorite papa. I'll probably be in jail for, you know, abuse and, and that kind of a thing. What I believe about snakes affects my actions. The snake then slid up and his head came around the, the rocks and I looked at it and knew in an instant that it was not a rattler. The viper rattlers are in the viper family. It's more of a triangular head. So I instantly reached out and grabbed the snake, handed it to my kids and let it bite them. That's, it's not going to cause any harm. It's great. What I believe about snakes affected my actions. And, and we have pictures of my grandkids holding the snake and it's so awesome. And they think I'm magical. God answered prayer that day. Praise be to God. That's a crazy story, but it's true. And I want you to understand that this principle is also true. What we believe about something affects how we respond to it how we respond around it. What you believe about God affects what you do with God, along with God, how you obey God. It's that same issue. It plays out with the Chaldeans. It plays out with Daniel. Can't do it. Can't have a relationship with the gods. Daniel says, can do it. I know this God. I'm going to trust him. And Daniel does what he does. It's a spectacular truth. And yet it's one that plagues me on a daily basis. 
that what I believe about God affects my actions. And so many times I have doubts about God and then I have doubts about my actions and I pull away from being fully obedient to him. This is the principle, number one, what you believe about God determines your actions. Now, I also want you to understand that what Daniel does next in this moment is he responds when Arioch comes to him. The first time he hears this story is Arioch is coming to kill him. And Daniel stops, and you can see this in verses 13 and 14. In verses 13 and 14, uh, the decree goes out, and the wise men were about to be killed, and they sought Daniel and his companions to kill them as well. They've not even heard this story. Then Daniel replied with prudence and discretion to Arioch, the captain of the king's guard, who had gone out to kill the wise men of Babylon. And he declared to Arioch, the king's captain, why is the decree of the king so urgent? Then Arioch made the matter known to Daniel, and Daniel went in and requested the king to appoint him a time. So he makes an appointment with the king for the next day. But this little line in here, and they sought to kill him, and Daniel replied with prudence and discretion to Arioch. That we see this little window into who a, a citizen of distinction is, is this idea that there's some bit of the character in Daniel, this wisdom, the spirit of God upon him, that remember, he's a very young man, but he responds with prudence and discretion. First thing I want you to realize, by using prudence and discretion, he was prudent. He didn't say everything he was thinking and feeling. He used discretion. He didn't let out all his thoughts. He didn't just blurt out words that he had. The fact that it says he used prudence and discretion means he had other thoughts. He had other emotions in that moment. What? You're going to do what? What's going on? He, I don't know exactly all of the thoughts he had, but I can imagine a few. You need to know that I often get in trouble because I don't have the same level of prudence and discretion that Daniel has. Even this morning, while Jeff Keyes was playing the pipe organ, I fully wanted him to have the Phantom of the Opera mask, that half mask on his face, and somewhere in that, just turn around at the crowd and give an evil grin. That, to me, sounded like a perfect Sunday morning skit. That would be great, Jeff, if you had that. That's not prudence and discretion. That's not something that should be done in this morning service, but I still would have loved it. Daniel doesn't do those kinds of things. He, in that moment, realizes the seriousness of it, and he simply asks Arioch, can I make an appointment with the king for tomorrow? And what does he ask? Listen to this. He stops and he says, and Daniel went in and requested the king to appoint him a time that he might show the interpretation to the king. He has just found out that the king's going to kill him if he doesn't have an interpretation. And Daniel says, can I make an appointment so that I can tell you the interpretation? What? How does he know he's going to have it? Because what he believes about God determines his actions. It determines his prudence and discretion. It determines his firm obedience to stop and say, I know my God. And in this moment, I don't have to ask God about that. I know God is capable of that. And he goes and he acts immediately on that moment. Number one, what we believe about God determines our actions. The last thing that he does in this little moment, and you can see this in uh, In verse 17, Daniel went into his house and made the matter known to Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, his companions, and told them to seek mercy from the God of heaven concerning this mystery so that Daniel and his companions might not be destroyed with the rest of the wise men. What he says is, boys, pray for mercy or we die. 
You need to pray for God's mercy that he will act on this or we're going to be dead. But mostly what I want you to understand is in Daniel's time of need, what he did was went to his support group, into his closest friends and said, can you pray with me for what's about to happen to us? And this question, it's, it's like a, you have a quick reaction force in your life of individuals who stand with you, who pray with you. And this question is, do you have them? If you've got a piece of paper and a pen right now, or if your journal's open, jot down one, two, and three. And I encourage you to identify three individuals that you would go to, to pray, that would pray for you in a moment like this. Believing that sometimes you might have doubts, you might have others that you know are going to pray for me, for you. This morning as I left the house, one of mine, my wife, Eugenie, she said to me, I have been praying for you. I will be praying for you. Number one on my list is Eugenie. You can put her in there if you'd like. I'll give you her email email, and you guys can all write her and she can be one of your prayer warriors. She's awesome. You need your three. Who are your three? And then the question that goes with it is, who are you in that quick reaction force for? Who do you step in and pray for? When they're going through a moment like this, who are you praying for? And right next to that, one, two, or three people. This is another thing that citizens of distinction do is they're surrounded by others who have a similar belief in God that determines their actions. Daniel doesn't hesitate. He doesn't think they won't do this. He goes to them and say, boys, pray, because we're going to die if we don't. And they go to God and they pray. All right, that's number one. This whole concept of what you believe about God determines your actions. Number two, what God believes about you is infinitely more important. Indeed, that he thinks about us at all, that he thinks about you at all is incredible. Now, I want to let you know that this thought, actually, this principle was stirred by a a, a kind of a conversation, an article that was written. C.S. Lewis had read a quote by A.W. Tozer, and when he read that quote, he came up with a response very similar to this. So Tozer's quote is, Tozer comes in and says, what comes into our mind when we think about God is the most important thing about us. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. C.S. Lewis said, no, it's not. He said how God thinks about us is infinitely more important than what we think about him. And I think C.S. Lewis is right. I love the quote by, by Tozer. I think he's got some truth there in principle. But this idea that what God thinks about us is actually more important than what we think about him. It matters what we think about God. But more importantly, is actually what God thinks about us. What God is thinking when he thinks of us. And this concept that he thinks about us at all is flat out incredible. And this is kind of how this thing lays out. So what happens here is Daniel, he stops and he is moving with prudence. He's moving with prayer. And then he does this thing about mercy that he has this thing in mercy where um, when he has, so they go home and they, they pray. Daniel has the vision. He gets the interpretation. The very next thing he does is he praises God. And then he goes and he finds Arioch and he says to Arioch, first thing, don't kill the wise men. 
This is spectacular that this concept and character of God bleeds through Daniel. That this whole thing of the character of God starts to to pour into Daniel. And this one shows up in verse 24. Therefore, Daniel went into Arioch, whom the king had appointed to destroy the wise men of Babylon. He went and said thus to him, do not destroy the wise men of Babylon. Bring me in before the king and I will show the king the interpretation. That Daniel starts to reveal something that God is pouring into him, the very thoughts of God. God's thoughts about men. That he stops and he doesn't. These guys, we could easily say, just kill off the wise men. That's going to leave just the Jews to lead the kingdom. That seems like a great plan. That's not what God's doing. God actually cares about the wise men and puts this spirit of mercy inside of Daniel. The mercy of God, who they prayed for. In other words, remember, boys, pray for mercy or we die. God grants mercy, not only to Daniel, but to the other wise men. Daniel carries that out. And the very first action that he does when he comes to Arioch is don't kill everybody else. That what God thinks and feels about men starts to be poured out through those followers, those men of distinction. So Daniel moves with um, prudence. He moves with prayer. He moves with mercy and he moves with humility. Um, This idea of humility is uh, what, what follow Arioch verse 25. Then Arioch brought in Daniel before the king in haste and thus said to him, I have found among the exiles from Judah, a man who will make known to the king, the interpretation. Good old Arioch. The first thing he does is he stops and says to the king, I found him. I've got your interpretation. I did it. You did what, Arioch? You were going to kill those guys. You didn't find anything. They actually stepped into your life and said, we actually have talked to our God and God has given an answer. This is literally Daniel's response when Nebuchadnezzar says to Daniel, all right, do you have this, this, uh, verse 26, the king says to Daniel, whose name was Belshazzar, are you able to make known to me the dream that I have seen and its interpretation? And Daniel answers and says, no, (laughs) and that should get you killed right there. Daniel says, no, I am not able But the God of the heavens who reveals mysteries is able. The contrast between Arioch and Daniel is striking. Arioch says, I found him. He takes credit. Whereas Daniel steps forward and says, no, I can't. Only God can do this. And he gives credit. This difference, unfortunately, starts to make me feel uncomfortable because of the amount of times that I take credit for things God is doing in my life. There's something happening in my life that God is transforming me. Even think about that snake story. That snake story is what God did. I had no control over finding a snake. I believe that God helped that snake show up that day. That's my belief. You may not believe that, but I live with that belief that God made the snakes. He controls those kind of things. I pray there's a snake. That's it. I can look at it and go, I found a snake for my grandkids. And I told that story as if I did, didn't I? I take credit for the snake. Or I stop and say, I can't find snakes. Snakes terrify me. It could have been a rattle. How well do I know it? God does things in my life that I take credit for on a regular basis. Don't take credit for what God is doing. And this moment, as we look at this, as we move into that, what God believes about you is infinitely more important. 
Daniel moves with prudence, prayer, mercy, and humility. It all lays out in this story. And Daniel, in the end, says one more thing about this. He stops and says, Nebuchadnezzar, you need to understand that God found you. This gets missed in this story all the time. But this concept is what Nebuchadnezzar is doing at this moment, but when he has the dream, is an unusual thing that happens to many of us. Oftentimes we have dreams, they trouble us. We wake up in the morning and we're like, oh, I had a bad dream. I don't even remember what it was, but it woke me up in the middle of the night. Some dreams we remember, some dreams we don't. We can relate to Nebuchadnezzar in this moment. But in this moment, as it lays out, there's a little line in here that, that plays out pretty strongly. In verse uh, 29, to you, O king, as you lay in bed, came thoughts of what would be after this. And he who reveals mysteries made known to you what it is to be. But as for me, this mystery has been revealed to me, not because of any wisdom that I have more than all the living, but in order that the interpretation may be known to the king and that you may know the thoughts of your mind. The king is laying in bed, verse 29, as you lay in bed, came thoughts of what would be after this. After what? After his kingdom, after his life. He's living his life, he's king, he's conquering kingdoms, he's at his pinnacle, and he's wondering what comes next? What comes next? And the God of the universe heard that wondering. God from a pagan, often Babylon, God is paying attention and listening. That is a beautiful image of who God is when we stop and say, he knows things, he knows all the things. And as we look at this moment, this is a question that, that a pagan wondering about what will be next in my life, what happens when I die, God notices, not Daniel, God. And God gives him a dream and God provides Daniel for the interpretation. So uh, most of you know uh, the story of my daughter, Emily, and the passing of her husband, Cody. And um, he died in the hospital after some complications of some surgery. And we spent a, a week kind of by the bedside as his body slowly slipped away. When he died, we went home. And after we had left the kids uh, with a babysitter, um, we went back to the kids and it, it fell to me to tell the kids that their dad had passed away. And as we started to talk through that with the kids and to share to them that the dad wouldn't be coming home, each of the kids had a slightly different response. In that moment, none of it right or wrong, it's just the innocence of childhood in a moment when you find out you, they'll never see their dad again. One simply stopped and said, well, where will we get money? How will we survive? Who's, where will we get food? Another was, well, mom, are you going to get married again? But Weston, uh, the middle child, he stopped and he asked a question that, that at first we didn't understand. And he said, is he in the gravel? And we're like, what? Is he in the gravel? And we still are looking at each other like, what is that question? And then Willow, the oldest daughter, uh, she was eight at the time. She stops and he says, no, he wants to know. Is he in the grave? And he didn't remember the word grave and he thought it was gravel and he wanted to know if his dad was in the gravel. And my heart broke in that moment. 
But do you recognize that here a five-year-old boy is asking a question that every one of us wonder the same thing? What happens next? What happens after this life? That is the question that Nebuchadnezzar is asking. He's going, what happens next? After I've done all of this, so what? What becomes of my life? And as he's pondering that question, the God of the universe that's in control of everything hears his wondering and responds. Do you understand that what God believes about you is infinitely more important than what you think about him? Indeed, that he thinks about you at all is incredible. It's an incredible gift that what God does there. And Nebuchadnezzar is not the only one wondering. Weston is not the only one wondering. The world is wondering this question. In fact, at a time of COVID, this year, 2020, with all that's gone on it, the fires, the, 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 the politics, everything that's going on is, is crazy making. And the world is stressed and the world is filled with fear. And so are many of us. As we wonder what is next, what is going on? And this is what happens in this moment. All right, number three, God controls the times and seasons. He sets up and removes kings and he knows things. He knows all the things. I love this one. Daniel simply answers this one. This is in when Daniel wakes up and he has the vision. In verse 20, it says, Daniel answered and said, blessed be the name of God forever and ever to whom belong wisdom and might. He changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what is in the darkness and the light dwells within him. To you, O God, my fathers, I give thanks and praise for you have given me wisdom and might and have now made known to me what we have asked of you. For you have made known to us the king's matter. The, the Daniel stops and says, God controls the times and seasons. He sets up and removes kings. Nebuchadnezzar set up by God, removed by God. And he knows things, all the things. He can reveal the dream of a pagan king in a distant land. He knows. In fact, he gave it. So he knows. Daniel lives with that truth. Citizens of distinction live with that truth. That God controls times and seasons. I don't know if you're stressed about what's going on in the world today, in the culture today, in the air today, but those things are controlled by God. God controls the times and seasons. And for us to stop and go, oh my gosh, the things have come off the wheels. This is out of control. It feels like it. But it is not out of control. It is fully in God's control. And let me say again, what you believe about God determines your actions. This principle is being played out here. And Daniel's response is, I know God knows all things. I know God is in control. And in the middle of this chaos, they're about to be put to death. He stops and turns to that God who can put up a king and take down a king and makes an appointment with that king and says, I'm going to give you an interpretation. And he goes and does it because God steps forward because God is in control. This is a powerful thing. Daniel believes this. And because of that, God uses Daniel. Do you want to be used by God? <laughs> then believe God can use you, will use you 
is a revealer of mysteries. It says it seven times in verse 19. Then the mystery was revealed to Daniel. In verse 22, he reveals deep and hidden things. In verse 28, there is a God in heaven who reveals mystery. In verse 29, he who reveals mysteries. In verse 30, this mystery has been revealed to me. And in verse 47, it shows up two times. Truly your God is a God of gods and the Lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries for you have been able to reveal this mystery. God knows what's next. God knows what's next about this world. He knows what's next about your life. If you have concerns about your life, go to him. Pray, bring that support team and say, please pray with me, but go to him. Now, here's the killer. Daniel gives a prophecy. We almost haven't talked about the prophecy at all. We didn't read it in the text. We haven't referred to it, but the dream itself is that there's this huge statue uh, monument of a man and it's bright, super bright. And it's got a gold head, silver chest and arms. It's got a bronze uh, core and thighs. And then it, it goes into iron legs and then the feet are iron and clay. You've probably heard that thing before. What's fascinating about this prophecy is Daniel gives that description of the dream and Nebuchadnezzar goes, yeah, that's it. And then he says, and here's the interpretation, that head of gold, that's you, Nebuchadnezzar, the, the silver that, and so Nebuchadnezzar is the Babylonians. The next is the Medes and the Persians. The next are the Greeks and the next are the Romans. And then a stone cut out from the mountain is going to smash it all to smithereens. That's the whole thing. And in short, guess what happens? This is written 2,600 years ago. Daniel interprets the dream and says, this is the dream. King Nebuchadnezzar, the Babylonians are going to reign. And then it's going to go to the Medes and the Persians. And then the Medes and Persians, it's going to go to the Greeks, Alexander the Great. And then after Alexander, it's going to go to the, the Romans. And then the Romans are going to have a split kingdom. And then the kingdom of heaven, the stone is going to smash it all. Those, what comes next are going to be short lived. But when the stone comes, it's going to be there forever. That stone will remain forever. And that stone is Jesus Christ in the kingdom of heaven. And to this day, that kingdom still reigns. Here we are in a church celebrating the kingdom of heaven. In China, there is a church in China celebrating the kingdom of heaven. In, in Nigeria, there is a church in Nigeria celebrating the kingdom of heaven. In Papua New Guinea, there is a church celebrating the kingdom of heaven. In Argentina, there is a church celebrating the kingdom of heaven. We could go on. In La Habra, there is a church, if you will believe it, celebrating the kingdom of heaven. This is true. Those kingdoms came just like he said it would. And his kingdom remains. That stone that the builders rejected went on from there. Jesus actually refers to that in Matthew 21. We're not going to go there. But instead, I want to finish with, with a fourth point. Citizens of distinction. Those who play off of these first four points have a different spirit and follow God fully. That's a line out of Numbers 14. It's referring to Caleb. But if you think about it, it is true of Caleb. It's true of Moses. It is true of David at times. It is true of, of Daniel right here. And it is absolutely true of Jesus Christ himself. They have a different spirit. They believe God fully. They follow God fully. That's what happens with citizens of distinction. 
Do we in Fullerton, carrying forward this message of the gospel, the gospel that is in that story of the statue is, the things of men will not stand, the things of God will stand forever. The kingdom of God and what Jesus brings transforms everything. Citizens of distinction believe that, they have a different spirit, and they follow God fully. Believe that God knows things. Believe that God knows you and is filled with mercy and comes for you. I want to close with a story of uh, this whole idea of the message of the gospel, of the stone and what it does. That instead of bringing destruction to just the the kingdoms of men, it also brings in the kingdom of God that brings in hope, that brings in mercy, that brings in love, that brings in grace, that brings in forgiveness. This is the kingdom of heaven. This is what we stand for as citizens of heaven, citizens of distinction. So when I first uh, was working at Hume Lake, uh, I got asked to speak at a Christian high school down in the valley below the mountains of Hume. And I, I go and I talk to the, the dean of the, the, the school and he said, I asked him, I said, what do you really want me to teach on? And he says, well, you could talk about anything, just be you know, a good engaging speaker. But if at the end you could make sure there was a gospel presentation. And I'm like, why do you need a gospel presentation? You're a Christian school. Like, all, aren't all your students Christian? And he goes, no, there's lots of parents who just put their kids in a Christian school. So if you can put a gospel presentation. So I kind of tagged one on and put it in there, almost not believing that there would be any non-Christians in the room. But I, I shared the gospel, just the simple concept that we have brokenness in our life. We constantly make mistakes. We're filled with sin. And in that sin, God himself sent his son to die for us so that we might have a relationship with this living God. So I shared that, didn't expect anything to happen. Afterwards, kids came up and talked, but, but one kid stuck around. He was holding off in the back. And afterwards, he comes up and he says, hey, can I talk to you? And I said, yeah. And he says, would you pray for me? What you said about what God has done, I think that's what I need. I need Jesus. And here he wanted to give his life to Christ. And I go, what's the story? And he lived on this little road that I passed all the time. And he he had a farm, his dad had a farm, and they raised cattle. And his job was to take one, as a young man, he was to take one particular cow and take care of that cow. It was actually a steer. And in that process, he came to me and he says, my dad is abusive verbally, emotionally, physically, he beats me. And he says, I don't want to report my dad. I, I sometimes do stupid things and I probably need to be punished. But the reality is sometimes I think he cares more about that cow and what that cow is going to bring to the family than he cares about me. And he says, today you shared a story about a sacrifice that wasn't about the cow. It was about me. That God actually sent his son to be sacrificed so that I would understand how much he loves me. And this high school boy in tears is laying out the message of the gospel. The message of the gospel is that there isn't a sacrifice you need to make, that you are more important to God, so much so that he sent his son to die for you to be that sacrifice. That story shows up here. It is the message that we as citizens of distinction must carry forward. Four points. What you believe about God determines your actions. What God believes about you is infinitely more important. Indeed, that he thinks about you at all is incredible. God controls the times and seasons. He sets up and removes kings and he knows things, all things. And we as citizens of distinction 
need to have a different spirit and follow God fully. The very last thing I want to do is let scripture be the final word. Out of 1 Peter 2, as you come to him, a living stone rejected by men in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves like living stones are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in scripture, behold, I am laying in Zion, a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. This is the stone in the dream of Nebuchadnezzar that God hears what's next and gives this answer. Verse seven, so the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. But you, you, the church of Fullerton, the church of North Orange County, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. So when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and they may glorify your God who is in heaven. That's what happened to Daniel next. Instead of being condemned, they glorified God. Let me pray for us. Lord, 2,600 years ago, there was a citizen of distinction, one young man who just simply had a different spirit and followed you fully. He believed you were in control and he believed that he could lean into your arms. Lord, this morning, there are many that uh, may be going through incredibly difficult times, incredible pain, brokenness, hurt, fear, anxiety. Lord, I would ask that you would be close to each of those individuals, that as they lean into you, as they reach out to you, as they cry out to you, you would respond loudly, clearly, with a clear sense of your presence in their life. Lord, use us as the Church of Fullerton to be citizens of distinction to this community around us who has all of those same emotions of fear, of hurt, of brokenness. Lord, may we boldly proclaim you, your love, your gospel, your goodness, your greatness. May we too find ourselves as those who follow you fully. And we ask these things in your name. Amen.